Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. That was kind of weak. Merry Christmas. I know it's the 23rd. Um, I hope you guys don't have a lot to do tomorrow. I hope, like, everyone's not running around too crazy or anything like that. I'm ready to celebrate. You guys ready to celebrate? This is our Christmas service, so, like, we get to celebrate tonight. Um, If you've been here over the past month, you know we've been in a series uh, that we've called Old Testament Advent, looking at different passages from the Old Testament and how they point forward to Christ and Christmas. And tonight we're looking at Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born. You guys know this passage? It's one of the more famous passages in Isaiah. Uh, When I think of this passage, I can't help but think of my first semester at seminary. I was at Princeton Seminary, and we saw a flyer for a community performance of Handel's Messiah. And it was at the Princeton University Chapel, which if you've never been, it's one of the, like, it's just this gorgeous, beautiful, gothic cathedral in the middle of Princeton. And that sounded pretty cool, so me and a bunch of our friends went. When we got there, we found out that community performance didn't mean amateur performance. It meant we were supposed to sing the song. And if you know anything about me, you know I can't really sing. I dropped out of choir in fourth grade. Um, I can't read music. I was once told by a speech teacher that I had the worst voice he had ever heard. It's okay. I've gotten past it. So I walked into the chapel, and someone is at the front door, and they, they hand me something. Or they, they, first thing they said to me is, so what part do you want? And I said, um, tenor? <laughs> this is funny. You guys got to laugh with me. Come on. So she handed me a score, and I sat down with the other tenors next to my friend Nick. And we were still early in seminary. I don't think I wanted to admit that I had no idea what was going on. And the song we were singing was this passage. Do you guys know this song from Handel's Messiah? It's the the song Susan sang is a version of it. You guys know it? For unto us a child is born. And then it repeats. And then you guys say... A son is given. A son is given. And then comes the next part. Do you guys know the next part? Goes, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And it's that, yeah, yeah, exactly, right? That's exactly what happened next. This like impossible choral scale comes next. And I was just completely lost, and I had no idea what was going on. And I couldn't sing it at all. Finally, I looked over my buddy Nick, and I realized he had no idea what was going on either and didn't know how to read music. And we both just started laughing hysterically because we couldn't sing this. And, they got, and it came back around, right? And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And my friend Abby was up in the front row, and she's like a really accomplished musician, and she's looking around like shushing us. She's up at the Sopranos, and then finally she realized we were just helpless, and she started laughing with us. And there we were, in one of the most beautiful buildings in the country, singing one of the most beautiful songs ever written, giggling like my children do when they lose themselves in the kingdom. Yeah. 
And what's that have to do with Isaiah 9 and Christmas? Well, not much really, but I can't think of this passage without thinking of that story. And I hope that every time you hear this passage from now on, you think of me miserably singing that song. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Sounds like Kat's actually sang that song for real at some point. She knows what I'm talking about. If you don't know that song, go look it up and you'll know what misery I was in trying to keep up with it. Behind that silly story is actually a really cool passage. Um, Isaiah 9 was probably written in about 730 BC. Um, Israel had been in rebellion from God for centuries. They had oppressed the poor and turned away from God. They had wicked kings who were more interested in wealth and power than in justice. And they had forsaken their calling to be a light, to be God's covenant people, to be God's special people, to reflect the love of God to all the nations around them. They had given up this calling and had become just like other nations. They had become just like everyone else. And because of this, God sends them warning after warning, right? He sends them prophet after prophet saying, turn around, get it right, turn back to me. You are my beloved, come back to me. There's still time to get it right. But finally, by the time we get to Isaiah, God removes his protection from them. And Isaiah says that the Assyrian Empire will enter the land and destroy it. And this happens in 722 BC, very shortly after this passage is written. Samaria is destroyed. The king is captured, and the people are carried off into exile, and the northern kingdom of Israel is no more. And you might expect God's message to them to be, as they go through this trial, you know, you guys really had this coming. Or maybe you might expect God to say, think about what you've done, and I might forgive you. Or even worse, I'm finally done with you. But before even Israel even goes into exile, this is what Isaiah says. You got that, man? This is his first word. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This is fascinating, right? Before they even go into exile, God promises hope. God promises that they will come out the other side. God promises that a light will come and break the darkness. God doesn't wait for them to get it right. God doesn't say, I'll renew my love for you once you repent. God's love never becomes conditional. Now, this is not to make light of sin, right? The exile will be difficult, and they brought it on themselves, and God weeps over them as they walk into exile. But God never leaves them. Even before they walk into darkness, God promises them that the light will come. Amen? And this is the truth of Christmas, that Christ doesn't wait for Israel to get it right to come. God doesn't wait for humanity to be ready to send us a Savior. Romans tells us that while we were still sinners, still far off, Christ died for us. While we were still lost and far off and wandering on our own, the Good Shepherd comes and finds us. And the amazing story of the Good Shepherd, right? That the Shepherd doesn't scold the sheep that has wandered off, but picks him up 
puts him on his shoulders, brings him home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Amen? Amen. We live in a world of darkness and we walk ourselves into it far more often than we should. But whatever darkness you find yourself in, this is the good news of Christmas. There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. At Christmas, God enters in. Amen? Now, you might have read this passage both times through and, and said, Boy, I'm really glad God has a special blessing for Zebulun and Naphtali. But in all likelihood, you read that and said, I have no idea what Zebulun and Naphtali are. How many of us are in that, that boat there? Yeah? Uh-huh. Who knows what Zebulun and Naphtali are? Cat? They're brothers of Joseph. They are. They are brothers of Joseph, which means that they are two of the twelve tribes of Israel. And in fact, we have a map of Israel. I think it's a nice little map there. I know it's really hard to see these little letters, but Napoli is that pink part right up there, and Zebulun is that white part right next to it. So they're two of the northern tribes of Israel. And in fact, when Assyria invaded, it would have looked something like this. Yeah, there you go. So you see that nice, big, thick red line there? Where's it pointed directly at? Yeah, Zebulun and Naphtali, that's right. They would have borne the brunt of Assyria's wrath. They would have been the first ones into exile. They would have been the places made most laid low. And yet the passage promises that in the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And if you know your biblical geography, this area up there by the the Sea of Galilee becomes known as Galilee. And this is where Jesus comes. And Galilee is not the nice part of Israel, right? It's not the, the glamorous part. That's Judah and Jerusalem. I always say that if Judah and Jerusalem and Judea and Jerusalem are like New York City, Galilee is like the New Jersey of ancient Israel. All you New Jerseyans can take pride in that. When people find out Jesus is from Nazareth, they literally say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet this is where God enters in. Into the place that has been most ravaged by sin. This becomes the place that Christ shows up. Into the place that has been hollowed out and emptied out and borne the weight of sin the worst. Christ shows up. Christ is born in the muck of the stable, not the cleanliness of the temple. Christ hangs out with the tax collectors and prostitutes, not the priests and princes. Christ takes on regular people as his disciples. He saves the woman caught in adultery. He heals the woman who's been unclean for 12 years. He heals the crazy guy chained up in the graveyard. At Christmas, not only does Christ enter in, he enters into the low places. And this is where he begins his work. Amen. Neil Cole once said, Messy people make the most fertile soil because they've got a lot of poop in their 
dollars. <laughs> and I believe the original version of the quote was less PG, so you can imagine what that or what it originally said, but you get the idea. That's where God enters in. That's where God does the work. Into the mess, into the muck. That becomes the fertilizer of God's new plants, new ideas. The kingdom of God comes into the little places. So where are your low places? Where is your Zebulun and Naphtaliah? Where is the places that have been abandoned, the places that have been ravaged, the places that sin have destroyed? Maybe inside of you, maybe in your life, maybe in your family, in your neighborhood. What are the long-forgotten spaces? Can you imagine that maybe that's not the last place God wants to get to, but actually the first that that might be the place that God's new work springs up? That that might be the place that Christ chooses to come? In Jesus' day, people expected the Messiah to show up at the temple, right? In Jerusalem. And we still do. We still expect Christ to show up in the clean places, in the holy places, with the perfect people who follow all the rules. But Isaiah 9 says Christ comes first to the low places, the places that have been humbled, the places ready to receive the kingdom of God. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, says Jesus. I have come for the sinners, the broken, those made low. So as you think about those low places in your life, can you open yourself up and let God do his work in those places? Or maybe just open your eyes. Maybe Christ is already there, tilling the soil, turning it over, letting that fertilizer do its good work. Amen? Amen. And lastly, at Christmas, God goes big. There's a version of Isaiah 9 that we often take on that says this, To those in suffering there is comfort, to those in sin there is forgiveness, to those in pain there is healing. And these are all good messages, right? These are all like step one. But the crazy good news of Isaiah 9 and Christmas is this, is that God actually aims higher than those things. Speaking to a nation about to go into exile, this is what Isaiah says. He says, For in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fueled for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So you see what Isaiah is doing there? 
to a people suffering under oppression, God doesn't just promise to defeat the oppressor, right? He promises to end oppression. To shatter the yoke that burdens them. To a people suffering in war, God doesn't just promise to end the war. God promises to end war. He says, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. The swords will be turned into plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks. Isaiah paints this beautiful vision that one day war will be no more. To a people who have lost their king, God doesn't just promise them a new king. He promises them the king of kings, an eternal king who will reign on David's throne and bring in an eternal kingdom of righteousness, justice, and peace. And to a people who are separated from God and sin, God promises he will not just forgive them, but walk with them, restoring the lost promise of Eden that God would dwell among them. All of Christ's ministry, people want Jesus to go small. They want simple miracles. They want him to enforce the religious rules, right? Make sure the sinners get punished. Even to the end, they want him to become a political king and kick out the Romans. But Christ aims bigger. Christ aims to make all things new. Amen? So Christ wants to do more than bring simple miracles, but instead raise us up in the resurrection. And Christ wants to do more than forgive our sins or help us follow the rules, but wants to raise us up as new creations. Born in him is something entirely new. Christ wants to bring about more than a political kingdom, but the eternal kingdom of God where peace and justice reign, where there is no more crying or mourning or death or tears. God doesn't go for the whole fix. God wants the whole salami. God doesn't just patch up the drywall. God turns the shack into a mansion. And these promises may seem far off, right? They're given to us sometimes as hope, something to long for, something future. But I think the more we walk in Christ, the more we open ourselves up to Christ, the more these things bleed into the present. And that new creation comes to be, even in the present, where Christ can say, the kingdom of God is within you, even now. Amen? Amen. And that's the vision of Christmas. That God doesn't want to do minor repairs to the same broken house. God wants to make the whole thing new. At Christmas, God doesn't come for the small fix. God comes to make all things new. Which leads me to the Grinch. And we will close with the Grinch. You guys like the Grinch? Yes. Yes, I love the Grinch. I love this particular picture. I watched it again this week, and I was like, this animation is so good. Anyway. So I got pretty sick this week, and I spent most of the day on Monday in bed, and I woke up just in time to have the kids turn on the Grinch. And I don't know, maybe it was because I was sick, but it just kind of, it, it struck me in a different way this year. Here's someone who's destroyed Christmas, right? The Grinch has stolen everything from everyone. He's made a mockery of their celebration. And then he has this conversion experience. And his heart grows how many sizes? The heart, yeah, his heart grows three sizes that day. 
and he gets the strength of, of anyone know? Ten Grinches plus two. That's right. And he rides back into Whoville. There we have him uh, riding back into Whoville. Got that next picture. Yeah, triumphant, right? To give back the gifts. And we take the end of the story for granted. We've probably seen, you know, if, you've, if you're like me, you've seen it 20 times, and you just kind of take for granted that, like, everything works out from there. But there's actually a remarkable ending to this story, right? The, when are we going to watch the movie? <laughs> I don't know, is it group? Maybe this weekend. I wish. <laughs> I was not expecting that interruption. Okay. Um, we take for granted that this story ends well. There's a different version of this story, right? Where, where the Grinch rolls back into Whoville and the Who's arrest them and take their stuff back, right? I mean, that'd be the natural response. Lock the guy up. Or there's a version we might expect where the Who's forgive him, but never really trust him again, right? Say, don't let that guy hurt Christmas. And they say, oh, no, you're, for, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. But the Grinch slinks back to his cave and lives in shame for the rest of his life as the guy who ruined Christmas. And that's the story most of us live in. That's the gospel way too many of us live in, right? One where we're forgiven, but not really healed. And there's the version that Dr. Seuss wrote. The Grinch serves the roast beast. Right? There he is. The Grinch becomes the honored guest. The villain doesn't become the forgiven villain, right? He becomes the honored guest. We take this ending for granted, but we rarely apply it to ourselves. That grace doesn't just want to forgive. Grace wants to make all things new. Grace doesn't want to leave us in shame. Grace wants to raise us up in Christ. Grace doesn't say you're forgiven, but go back to your cave and think about how terrible you are. It says, come and carve the roast beast. Come and play in the kingdom of God. It says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Come to the wedding feast as an honored guest. And after we receive that grace, it actually sends us out to be the who's, right? To give this radical love away to everyone we meet, even those who steal Christmas. It takes some imagination to take this on, that even in the low places... Even the low places can be the place where Christ is born. Even the muck and the mess can be the fertilizer of something entirely new. Even the Grinch can become the honored guest. But at Christmas, God enters in. God enters into the low places. And God enters in to make all things new. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land, a deep darkness and light has dawned, and there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. And this is because Christ has come. Amen. Christ has come, and all things are being made new. Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. 
find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.